ways to charge materials sourced by child labor. Is our push into green energy riddled with hidden costs? In this special report, we look at China's growing dominance in the renewable energy sector, the costs to the environment and human life, and how every American is involved. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. The U.S. seems to have declared war on fossil fuels. That's despite over 80 percent of our energy still coming from oil and gas. Headlines touting that green and renewable energy will protect the environment, create a better future for our children, and revolutionize our lives. But some warn we might be jumping ahead of ourselves. Is there a darker side we're not talking about? Under the guise of green energy and trying to make everything a very positive experience, the fact of the matter is there is child labor involved in bringing the minerals out of the countries that we rely on for our uh, wonderful clean uh, vehicles and power. And so they're kind of a misnomer that we can feel good when it's really relying on child labor. Silicon Valley author Ann Bridges notes this isn't a new realization but it has been getting slightly more attention lately. To fuel our green revolution, oil and gas are swapped out for cobalt and polysilicon. But where do these materials come from, and how do we get them? The U.S. federal government has, for the first time, included raw materials used in the clean energy transition on its list of goods linked to child labor. Those materials include cobalt, used in lithium-ion batteries, and polysilicon, used to make solar panels. That report noted the Republic of the Congo in Africa is responsible for around 70 percent of the world's cobalt, and a large chunk of that is sourced through child labor. An estimated 40,000 of the 255,000 miners involved in the industry are children. That's about one in six miners. Some are as young as six years old, often working 12-hour days and for very low pay. A company called Electra Battery Materials says demand for cobalt increased by 22 percent in 2021, while some estimates say it could grow 30 percent by 2025. As for polysilicon, China's Xinjiang region, also known as East Turkestan, makes up around 45 percent of the world's source. That's the area home to the Muslim ethnic minority group, the Uyghurs. Last year, the U.S. banned imports of polysilicon from certain companies in China to crack down on concerning labor practices tied to that supply chain. But no such bans on cobalt imports exist. On top of the human rights concerns, is our push into renewable green fueling a growing dependency on China for these materials? If we've built an, an energy system around a dependency on raw materials from China, on rare earth minerals from China, uh, we're going to find ourselves without a secure, reliable energy, energy source at a time when we're potentially going to war. Kelly Sloan is a senior fellow in energy and environment at the Centennial Institute. He notes if we continue on this path without putting a working energy policy in place, we'll find ourselves in a situation where American citizens won't be able to turn lights on, won't be able to put fuel in their cars or electricity in their cars. You know, if you're, uh, you know, if you're you go all, all EV, we won't be able to drive around, we won't be able to feed ourselves. The link between national security and energy is that. Uh, 
all an adversarial country really needs to do is go after your energy supply. You know, if they can turn the lights out. That's because right now, Almost all the minerals in the world at this point end up running through China. Uh, by establishing themselves as a manufacturing hub, they have invested in the purification and processing and all the behind the scenes uh, steps that are needed in a supply chain. But what about these raw materials that can be found in other countries, including here in America? So when you talk about, you know, there's lithium everywhere or there's cobalt in other places, yes, that's true. But eventually all of them get put on ships and sent to China. And then China does the uh, manufacturing of the different um, components that then fit into the finished product, which are then shipped out to the rest of the world. And that dependency on the Chinese regime is setting off alarms. As long as they're holding the cards, they can shut that supply off. And if we haven't don't have an energy policy in place where we can provide for our own needs, meet our own demand, uh, then we're going to be in the same position as you know a lot of Europe is right now, trying to struggle to find you know, where we're going to where we're going to do this. Are we going to uh, can we ramp up drilling uh, quick enough to get some natural gas online? Can we ramp up the plants that we shut down? Uh, it takes years to get a nuclear plant. And as for how China established this global dominance. China's dominance using the Belt and Road Initiative, um, and I think they have one now called the String of Pearls, which is to try to connect all the different countries around the world to export to them, um, has really created a reliance on a single country for really the technology and the tools that the rest of the world uses for our daily life. I mean, literally, uh, you know, if you can't get a smartphone, if you can't get your car, you're going to be thrown back a couple hundred years in time in terms of trying to struggle to survive. The Belt and Road Initiative is China's global infrastructure strategy, which some have dubbed debt trap diplomacy. Under it, the Chinese regime offers major loans to improve infrastructure in developing foreign nations, but often swoops in to collect key assets later, when the countries can't pay back their debt. One example is with Laos, which recently signed a 25-year concession agreement with a Chinese company to control the nation's power grid. That includes electricity imports to other countries. They convinced uh, people that it was too dirty to do, too harmful for the environment. They were happy to do it. They had this large country. As a result, what we've got is um, a number of people who, in countries who are totally reliant on China's capabilities in manufacturing because we have ceded our own manufacturing base over to them. It's akin to how Germany and other European countries are finding out now just how dependent they are on Russia for their energy needs. That's in the wake of Russia's invasion into Ukraine, the West's sanctions, and Russia's retaliation. But as for just how serious this is, Energy security is national security. If you don't have a way to move people around, if you don't have a way to uh, put your planes in the air and, and move troops, for example, from one place to the other, you are literally a sitting duck. Sloan adds energy is vital to all parts of our lives, from the economy to how we feed ourselves, keep ourselves warm, and manufacture things. All of it relies on a secure energy source. Right now, fossil fuels power 80% of our energy needs. If we switch to green and renewables... We are depending on a potential global adversary for 
what is critical, uh, basic critical infrastructure. Now, when it comes to the argument that green energy can replace fossil fuels, Bridges notes there's one key area people often forget about. Green energy may supply electricity well, like solar power, wind power. It will never be able to replace heat. And heat is what is used for industrial processing. Heat is what is made to make steel and bend steel into your cars and your tanks. Heat is what is used uh, besides your own home and, and cooking, but heat is what is used really for the uh, ways to make life work. And that plays out in electric vehicles. Um, even when you talk about cars, the electric car doesn't work well in cold weather. It loses, the battery itself loses the, uh, the range. So all of a sudden, if you're going uphill in the wind in the cold in Wyoming, you can only go about 100 miles. Uh, and even though your battery says it's, it's rated for 300, well, all of a sudden now you have to find a place to charge. And that is not the way we have lived our life. We have lived our life with energy being handy and convenient and uh, affordable. Slow notes right now. Because we just don't have the battery technology to you know, be able to, uh, to store that energy. That's the biggest issue with it. If we, if we could effectively store energy or efficiently store energy, solar and wind would be great. But we, we, just, we just can't do that. I mean, the, you know, the, the batteries in these things last you know, how, how long, right? But as for steps to boost our battery production and storage, there's another issue. A lot of the raw materials for that are going to have to come from places like China. We just don't have enough of them here with the rare earth minerals. And that poses another set of problems, uh, uh, political, obviously, uh, economic, if we're relying on a country that may not have our best economic interests at heart at all times for you know, critical minerals, uh, strategic, you know, and if, uh, you know, something happens within the Taiwan Strait. Now, what's holding us from manufacturing it ourselves? Bridges notes. We have a lot of environmental lawsuits, concerns, uh, people who are for green energy but don't, still don't want to have a plant built in their backyard or still uh, are trading off human life for the life of a fish or a butterfly or a frog or a golden eagle. She adds, sometimes it's worth thinking about what exactly the argument is. If you really look at nature and include human in that, I think you have to look at the priority decisions and say, what are we really trying to do here? Are we trying to uh, leave land pristine pure or go back 200 years or go back 1,000 years before humans even thought of a machine? I mean, that those are kinds of, kinds of discussions that have been squelched, but they really are at the heart of the issue. But on top of that, Bridges notes what it boils down to is... Environmentalist lobby is well-funded um, from a lot of nonprofits, a lot of foundations. We currently have a secretary of the interior who, frankly, between her and the head of the EPA, is pretty much blocking any kind of resource development. And as for the rules themselves... There are regulations in place that have not been updated for about 50 years, and no one wants to touch them, especially anything related to nuclear, because that has been forbidden. Uh, now, all of a sudden, we're seeing a resurgence in nuclear energy, and we're looking at it going, well, okay, if, if we need to open up that can of worms again, quote unquote, then maybe this is an opportunity to really look at a lot of these environmental um, issues and say, yes, we can do it. We can do it well. We can do it cleanly. And if the idea is to protect the environment, the air environment, then why on earth can't we also um, protect the land and the water in a similar fashion? You know, it's not one versus the other. 
Coming up, is clean energy really clean? And could it be linked to a dark side of abuse? Next, we deep dive into the toxic side of renewable energy, the ways of storing it, and what it means for our environment going forward. More on that after the break, here on China in Focus. But perhaps that's not the right question. Looking at these technologies, are they really green? Let's take a look at solar panels, keeping in mind the hazy realm of slave labor surrounding the raw materials to make them. Processing the raw materials requires giant furnaces, which are powered by fossil fuels. The argument is that this energy investment is later paid back over the solar panel's lifetime. But that's dependent on a measurement known as the carbon intensity value. It refers to how many grams of carbon dioxide are released to produce a kilowatt hour of electricity. But this value varies per country. China, for example, has double that of the United States. So if the panels are made in China but shipped to the U.S., the payback is considerably longer. That's without factoring in transportation emissions. If we look at polysilicon, it's still not the finished product. That has to be coated with several substances. Many are highly toxic in their own right, like arsenic, lithium, and gallium. This whole process is also water-intensive, though it needs less than is used to help cool thermoelectric fossil fuels and nuclear power plants. And what about once the solar panels are up and running? Solar panels also need a lot of physical space once installed. That can impact ecosystems, from agriculture to native plants and animals. But that's not the end of our investigation. What happens once the solar panels reach the end of their lives? The International Renewable Energy Agency and other organizations note that by around 2050, around 78 million metric tons of solar panels will have run their course. Some parts, albeit a small portion, can be recycled. But not the toxic portions. What happens to those? A Forbes article titled, If Solar Panels Are So Clean, Why Do They Produce So Much Toxic Waste? notes that recycling can be more expensive than using new raw materials. According to a 2015 United Nations Environment Program report, Somewhere between 60 and 90 percent of electronic waste is illegally traded and dumped in poor nations. A study by the Institute for Energy Research notes China has more solar power plants than any other country. In China alone, there could be 20 million metric tons of solar panel waste. That's around 2,000 times the weight of the Eiffel Tower. And cleaning it up is pricey, too estimated to cost more than $500,000. While cleaning up the solar industry might be costly, it seems we're still saving money on the front end. A new study published in the journal Nature estimated that the globalized solar supply chain saved U.S. solar panel buyers $24 billion out of a total global savings of $67 billion. Researchers now estimate that if the U.S. keeps tariffs on Chinese solar panels, Solar panel prices will be approximately 20 to 25 percent higher in each country by 2030. As we continue looking for ways to clean up after new industries, slow notes. The batteries don't last forever, uh, and when they do run out, you can't just recharge them. They're, you know, they're, they're not like this. You just 
uh, plug a bit. You know, a lot of these batteries have a, about a 10, 12 year lifespan and then they're done. And then what do you do with them? Well, we don't really have, we don't really know what to do with them. One solution so far is storing them in warehouses. But what happens when the volume of them keeps increasing? They have toxic materials in them. Uh, uh, and so we have it's kind of the same issue, on, honestly, that uh, uh, we initially had with nuclear is what to do with the waste. It's that these create a lot more waste and that's a lot more difficult to deal with. The fossil fuels present problems too. Fossil fuels, they do have some issues with, uh, especially coal, you know, with you know, being ecologically uh, unsound. But uh, as, as Europe is showing us right now, you need to have a sound energy policy that is based in reality, not based on ideology. Sloan adds, what we need is? We need to make sure that we have all of our needs covered. You know, and it's, it's not just a push to renewables, it's this push for overall electrification of everything, the vehicles. Uh, there's a push you know, in my home state of Colorado right now, and throughout the US, uh, California in particular, to do away with natural gas going into buildings for heating and for. But all isn't lost. There's an opportunity, we, you know, we could set up a manufacturing plant today. The problem is we have to uh, be willing to do the things that come along with it, which is faster permitting, uh, get rid of a lot of the regulations. Um, when you look at the countries we compete with, one of the reasons that, you know, Indonesia and China and Mexico uh, are the places where manufacturing goes is they don't have the kind of really heavy labor laws and uh, governmental interference, I'd say, with the private sector. Bridges notes it may be time for us to take a long, hard look at the regulatory side. There are going to be a lot of questions about whether or not the um, all the different regulations that have been put forward are legal. That is starting to be challenged. And if they are found to be illegal, then I think you'll see a renaissance here because people are itching to this, to have at least a parallel supply chain um, to China. And it's not just us. I think all, all of Europe is looking at this. Australia is, um, Japan clearly is, Taiwan, South Korea. Um, we all recognize we're a little bit too dependent on them and are looking for ways to uh, work together better. And for that to happen... We definitely need uh, permitting reform. That was one of uh, uh, Senator Manchin's demands when he did finally sign on to the... Uh, uh, to, you know, to, to, to Biden's plan, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. I hate calling it that because it'll do no such thing. But at any rate, uh, that's a discussion for another time. But um, one of his uh, conditions was permitting reform. And for a long time, since at least the 70s, um, and it really got into high gear in the 90s, uh, it takes years, in some, some cases many years, uh, just to get a permit for... But how is all that playing out right now? Taking easily 10 years you know, to just get a, per, uh, a permit to be able to, to build a mine. If, if, you, ever, if you ever can, um, then you have the environmental groups that can come in and find some flaw, something that was overlooked, uh, some either was uncrossed or either was not dotted in, in the paperwork to sue under, under the NEPA, under, under, the, uh, uh, under that act, and hold this up for even longer. What's important to remember is we all have strengths and so we all have to leverage those strengths and one of the things we have is a know-how and and a lot of land that we could tap. At the end of the day, what can be done? We need to embrace our environmental positivity 
I don't think there's anyone in the natural resources area, whether you're in mining, whether you're in green, whether you're just a standard civ uh, civilian who says, oh, sure, I want dirty air and water and I want to kill all the critters. No, we all want to do it in a balanced approach. And um, I think if we trust each other that that's what we're going to do, then we can actually create an American renaissance. If we don't trust each other, um, then, yeah, we are basically allowing ourselves to become slaves to whatever uh, regime decides that they want to really push themselves forward, whether it's Putin or she or someone else. Looking at what steps the concerned citizen can take, Sloan advises making your voices heard at the polls. But it's not as simple as a left or right issue. He adds, education is key. You know, I, I would encourage people to kind of, you know, learn the issue on something other than Twitter. No offense against Twitter. Twitter's great. But, uh, um, you know, you have, you have other, other places where you can learn about these issues. Find out where, where the candidates stand on it, if they actually understand what the, uh, you know, what, what the problems are, what the, uh, what the challenges are with every perceived solution. Um, I would say that's probably the best thing that the, uh, that we can do as, uh, as citizens is just uh, educate ourselves and make sure that those people we put in uh, positions of authority and in, in government uh, are educated as well. As the race for green and renewable energy picks up steam, it's important to keep in mind the human, environmental and economical costs involved. Experts note there are key areas to keep in mind before we find ourselves at the mercy of an adversarial power that does not have our best interests at heart. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ndd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.